You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Perhaps I'll make a start. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Margaret Young, Director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. It's a great pleasure to be hosting this seminar at the the time of Christmas brush, so thank you very much for coming along. Carrie is going to introduce Julie in, in a moment. She's agreed to chair, and we're, we're delighted that Dr. Carrie McDougall, uh, expert in international humanitarian law, is able to chair this seminar. Uh, for those of you who don't know Carrie, she works across international law and international humanitarian law, has experience both within the, within the civil service and within academia. Um, and I guess given the very tragic events of the last couple of months, expertise in international humanitarian is very needed. I'd also like to um, acknowledge the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations upon whose land we stand and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. So over to Carrie to introduce Julian. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret, for those kind words. I'd also like to um, acknowledge uh, the, the sovereign lands that we're meeting on today. Um, it's my absolute honour to be chairing this session. Um, I'm not surprised that we've got a good turnout for this very interesting topic. Um, so Julian Hetehiwa um, is a PhD candidate visiting us from uh, the University of Bonn. He's also a visiting student at the Oxford Institute for Population Ageing at the University of Oxford. And I understand that, um, Julian, you got to MLS via a recommendation from Hilary Charlesworth. So um, that is, of course, a credit to the regard with which your research is held. Um, That research focuses on the relationship between youth and international law. And when Margaret approached me to to chair this, I immediately said yes, because this puts together two of my key interests. Many decades ago now, I was uh, the youth representative in Australia's delegation to the UN, so I have a very strong interest in all things youth agency and and the relationship between youth and international law. And Margaret mentioned I I spent some time as a a government legal advisor, and I would say that one of the more challenging technical things I had to do as a government lawyer was actually draft targeting directives for the ADF. So this is a really complex unsettled area of the law. So I'm really excited um, to hear what you've got to say to us, uh, Julian, about this this topic. So without further ado, over to you. Thank you very much for this kind introduction. And first of all, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of the unceded land on which we meet today. And I pay respect to elders past, present and future and acknowledge the importance of Indigenous knowledge in the academy. I'm going to speak today about the principle of distinction in international humanitarian law, but before I begin, it was already pointed out, I have to thank a few people. Uh, First and foremost, Judge Hilary Charlesworth, who was so kind enough to connect me to the directors, Professor Sonia Pahuja and Professor Margaret Young, both welcomed me very kindly to this institute. And also, I have to thank Dr. Kerry McDougall for sharing today's seminar. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us. also, I have to thank Professor Thomas Guterres and uh, my colleague Eunice Gould, who had some early ideas of my talk today. And uh, I was supported in my travels by Sri Lankan Airlines, so I have to thank them as well. My central claim is that the law of distinction lacks clarity and that this offers space for biases to the detriment of young men. I want to advance that claim in five steps. I will first briefly introduce the principle of distinction and its relevance. 
I will then speak about the law in greater detail. I will then present a critique based on the categories of youth and young people. I will then use um, Hilary Charlesworth's work um, to move beyond the juice and bellow and point to continuities. And in the end, I want to present an outlook. I have to admit it's very early stage. And so please do challenge me, um, share your questions and concerns, um, and I'm very happy to hear your uh, criticism so I can further develop um, this, this thought. So what is the principle of distinction? In a nutshell, to quote Niels Meltzer, in the context of facilities, every person must be either legitimate military objective or protected person, tertium non datur. So a third category doesn't exist. The ICJ described the principle as one of the cardinal principles of international humanitarian law as constituting the fabric of international humanitarian law. According to the ICRC, the principle of distinction represents the very essence of international humanitarian law applicable in armed conflicts. And to the International Law Commission, it even seems justified to rank the principle of distinction as a norm of jus cogens. My talk is very much inspired by feminist approaches to international law. More concretely, I want to presuppose with Orly Meyer Stern that the clarity of the law has an impact on the behavior of those doing the fighting. And I quote from her book, the principle of distinction is of critical importance to the protection of civilians. Confusion between civilians and combatants, both in law and in fact, can result in greater numbers of civilians being harmed. Where those fighting cannot tell the difference between those who pose a threat to their military efforts and those who do not, civilians are more likely to be killed. So too, where the law does not make it clear who fighters may or may not target, civilians bear the brunt. It is therefore crucial that this distinction be clearly demarcated in law and strictly adhered to in practice. Thus, I feel motivated to explore, explore the law and its clarity. What then is the law? In the following, I want to delve deeper into the principle of distinction. My main aim is to show that the law lacks clarity. I just want to briefly recap that international humanitarian law differentiates between international armed conflicts, IACs, and non-international armed conflicts, NIACs. Most basically, the former refers to interstate wars, while the latter concerns internal armed conflicts. The distinction is relevant because the rules applicable to international and non-international armed conflict um, are different. Things are certainly more difficult than that, but in the interest of time, I won't get, go to any details. What is important, however, is that I will take up this distinction and the following. I will first speak about the law of international armed conflicts and then turn to the law of non-international armed conflicts. And in the end of this section, I will address the issue of direct participation in hostilities. So let me begin with the law of IACs. Our starting point is Article 48 of the first additional protocol. And I quote, in order to ensure respect for and protection of the civilian population and civilian objects, parties to the conflict shall at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combatants and between civilian objects and military objectives, and accordingly shall they direct their operations only against military objectives. Niels Melzer criticizes this norm as this general rule does not cover all categories of persons which may be present in a context of hostilities and does not provide sufficiently concrete guidance for the targeting decisions that have to be taken by those involved. Thus, there are two major issues with Article 48 of the First Additional Protocol, one concerning the categories of persons 
and the other regarding the guidance for targeting decisions. Allow me to start with the person subject to direct attack. While Article 48, first additional protocol, implies that combatants are military objectives, this basic rule is not very accurate in the view of the fact that not only and not all combatants may be lawfully attacked. For instance, combatants placed hors de combat may also be subject to direct attack. According to Article 41 of the first additional protocol, a person who either is in the power of an adverse party or clearly expresses an intention to surrender or has been rendered unconscious or is otherwise incapacitated by wounds or sickness and therefore incapable of defending him or herself shall not be made object of attack. However, this protection ceases if this person engages in any hostile act or attempts to escape. To keep it a bit simpler, I would focus on medical and relig religious personnel. Let us rather consider combatants and civilians taking direct part in hostilities. The Geneva Conventions do not provide a definition of the term combatants. However, Article 43, Paragraph 2 of the First Additional Protocol provides the following definition. Members of the armed forces of a party to a conflict are combatants, that is to say, they have the right to participate directly in hostilities. What then is an armed force? Article 43, Paragraph 1 of the Additional Protocol gives an answer. The armed forces of a party to a conflict consist of all organized armed forces, groups, and units which are under common responsibility to that party for the conduct of its subordinates, even if that party is represented by government or an authority not recognized by an adverse party. Besides that, according to Article 2 of the Fourth Hague Convention and Customary International Law, participants in a levée en masse also enjoy the status of combatants. Participants in a levée en masse are in line with Article 4, Literature A, paragraph 6 of the Third Geneva Convention, those inhabitants of a non-occupied territory who on the approach of the enemy spontaneously take up arms to resist the invading forces without having had time to form themselves into regular armed units, provided they carry arms openly and respect the laws and customs of war. Besides participants in a levée en masse, Article 48, First Additional Protocol, makes no mention of civilians taking direct part in hostilities. Now we'll come, to, come back to this group later. As Article 48 of the First Additional Protocol expressly states, direct operations shall not be directed against civilians. Article 50, Paragraph 1 of the First Additional Protocol defines members of this group as follows. A civilian is any person who does not belong to one of the categories of persons referred to in Article 4, Literature 1, Paragraphs 1, 2, 3, and 6 of the Third Convention, and in Article 43 of this protocol. Thus, it is said that civilians are those who are neither members of the armed forces within the meaning of IHL, nor participants in a levé en masse. Interestingly, Article 50 of the first, uh, Article 50, Paragraph 1 of the First Additional Protocol, provides us with a second sentence. In case of doubt whether a person is a civilian, that person shall be considered to be a civilian. The first additional protocol expressly acknowledges that there are situations of doubt, that the distinction between civilians and military targets is not always clear cut. If there are doubts, Article 50, Paragraph 1 of the first additional protocol requires the parties to a conflict to regard the person in question as a civilian. While this may seem to provide sufficient protection against the dangers of military necessity, I have two issues with Article 50, Paragraph 1, Sentence 2 of the First Additional Protocol. The first issue concerns reservations. States like France and the United Kingdom entered reservations regarding Article 50, Paragraph 1, Sentence 2 of the First Additional Protocol. They do not understand the norm 
in a way that it overrides a commander's duty to protect the safety of troops under his or her command or to preserve his or her military situation. Secondly, I question the word doubt. What exactly, when exactly can we speak of doubt? Is a bit of confusion enough? Does every hesitation amount to doubt? In other words, what is the threshold which needs to be fulfilled in order to establish doubt? The UK acknowledges that doubt is an ambiguous term, stating in its reservation, the rule in the sec second sentence of paragraph one applies only in cases of substantial doubt. The reality of facilities further complicates this. Janina Dill illustrated this reality as follows. In the midst of war, combatants are at every turn confronted with the overwhelming demands of military necessity. Not following them will most definitely give the enemy an advantage in a struggle for victory, and can an extremist put an immediate end to a combatant's life? The social, legal, and emotional consequences of killing or maiming another human being in war, to the contrary, are uncertain and remote. In the presence of a threatening enemy, combatant, uh, in the presence of a threatening enemy combatant, an actor's commitment to the notion that all human life is worthy may appear abstract, his self-conception as a compassionate person fanciful, end of quote. The ambiguous language of Article 50, First Additional Protocol, for me, opens the gate for biases. Lastly, I believe I do not need to elaborate why I believe that the principle of distinction is not strengthened by states which are not even parties to the First Additional Protocol, such as the US, India, Pakistan, Turkey, and Iran. To highlight the main points, the language of Article 48, First Additional Protocol, is far from clear, and Article 50, Paragraph 1, does not provide a sufficient remedy. This leads me to conclude that the principle of distinction in IACS is full of holes. The gates for biases are wide open. I would now like to move to the principle of distinction in non-international armed conflicts. Common Article 3 protects all persons taking no active part in hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their arms and those who placed order combat by sickness, wounds, detention from, attack, from direct attack. Article 13 of the second additional protocol also offers protection, stating the civilian population as such, as well as individual civilians, shall not be the object of attack. If states have not ratified either treaty, they can still be bound by customary international law. According to the ICRC, the customary rule of distinction in NIACS is to be understood in the following manner. The parties to the conflict must at all times distinguish between civilians and combatants. Attacks may only be directed against combatants. Attacks must not be directed against civilians. Persons subject to direct attack are members of armed forces, dissident armed forces, and other organized armed groups. Besides this, according to Article 13, Paragraph 3 of the Second Additional Protocol, civilians directly participating in hostilities may be lawfully targeted too. This is also a rule of customary international law. And again, I will get back to this group later. So how can we define armed forces and organized armed groups? Conventional international humanitarian law on non-international armed conflicts does not define those categories. Building on 40, uh, Article 43, first paragraph of the first additional protocol, the ICRC finds that there is a customary rule applying to NIACS, which defines states armed forces as follows, and I quote, the armed forces of a party to the conflict consist of all organized armed forces, groups, and units which are under a common responsible to that party for the conduct of its subordinates. What about organized armed groups? The ICRC highlights that practice is ambiguous as to whether members of armed opposition groups are considered members of armed forces or civilians. Uh, most manuals offer no insight as to how organized armed groups shall be understood. 
Nils Meltzer proposes that, and I quote, in functional terms, state armed forces, dissident armed forces, and other organized groups within the meaning of Article 1, Paragraph 1 of the Second Additional Protocol should be regarded as equivalent to the armed forces of a party to non-international armed conflict. Again, this may be a proposal of Niels Meltzer, but the law offers no such clarity. If we accept this functional approach, crucial questions remain. How can we establish beginning and end of membership in organized armed groups? How can we differentiate between members of the political wing of a party to the conflict and those belonging to the military wing? How can we distinguish members of organized groups from civilians who spontaneously decide to directly participate in hostilities? Again, what I want to stress here is that these questions are already difficult to answer in the calm atmosphere of a university, ensuring that decisions on targeting are not arbitrarily made in combat situation in NIACs is certainly more troubling. Civilians are those who are protected against direct attack, and I only show, shall focus on them here. As obvious as this protection may seem, the second additional protocol does not define the category of civilians. While one could argue that in the context of NIACs, civilians are all those who are not members of armed forces, dissident forces, and other organized groups, this offers little help. As highlighted above, practice is not clear as to whether members of armed opposition groups are civilians. The ICSC stresses that most manuals define civilians negatively with respect to combatants, armed forces, and are silent on the status of members of armed opposition groups. As I pointed out earlier with the work of Janina Dill, the reality of combatant is quite messy. Uh, the reality of combat is quite messy. The preamble of the second additional protocol recalls, and I quote, that in cases not covered by the law and force, the human person remains under the protection of the principle of humanity and the dictates of the public conscience. However, this does not amount to rule of doubt. Article 50, paragraph 1 of the first additional protocol, which states that in cases of doubt whether a person is a civilian, that person shall be considered to be a civilian, does not apply to NIACs, and you heard my criticism of this norm before. The preamble of the second additional protocol, which is couched in vague and ambiguous language, offers no meaningful protection in this regard. This silence, again, opens the door for biases. As I mentioned earlier, I would like now to come back to the issue of civilians directly participating in hostilities. As Niels Melzer aptly observed, contemporary armed conflicts are marked inter alia by a shift of military operations from distinct battlefields into population centers, by the intermingling of armed actors with the civilian population, by an increasing involvement of civilians in activities closely related to the conduct of hostilities. This trend causes serious difficulties in the distinction between persons who are, and respectively, are not entitled to protection from direct attack. As a result, the ICRC highlights, Civilians are more likely to fall victim to erroneous or arbitrary targeting, while armed forces, unable to properly identify the adversary, run an increased risk of being attacked by persons they cannot distinguish from the civilian population. Allow me to stress the role of the law here. If civilians directly participate in hostilities, they may be lawfully targeted as if they were combatants. The principle of distinction does not apply during the duration of participation. This is laid down in Article 51, Paragraph 3 of the First Additional Protocol, in Article 13, Paragraph 3 of the Second Additional Protocol, and the same is also established under customary international law. The law on civilians directly participating in hostilities is anything but clear. First, when can we speak of participation? Is it sufficient that the civilian takes some part in the general war effort, 
Must the act of participation lead to immediate harm? Or are combatants allowed to presume that the person they are facing is the enemy until proven otherwise? How broad is the margin of appreciation for military commanders? Second, how can we de determine the temporal dimension? When will civilians regain the protection of the principle of distinction? After every shot they fired, as soon as they laid down their arms, if they had home? What I'm trying to say is that the law lacks clarity here. To quote Niels Melzer again, despite the significant consequences of direct participation in hostilities for the protection of involved civilians, conventional international humanitarian law provides no express definition of the notion, nor can a clear interpretation be derived from state practice, international jurisprudence, or the travaux préparatoires. Metzer rightfully stresses that if abuse and arbitrariness is to be avoided, the operating forces must be provided with clear and understandable rules of engagement, which can assist them in carrying out their mission in accordance with the requirements of IHL. While Meltzer himself authored the ICRC's interpretive guidance on the notion of direct participation in hostilities under international humanitarian law, it must be noted that this document is only an interpretive guidance. Thus, the guide obviously does not create any legal obligations. So, is this bias important? As I've pointed out, that the principle of distinction lacks clarity and offers space for biases. I want to show now that this is to the detriment of young men. Crucial for my argument is the role of the notion of youth. Before I go into details, I wish to point out that arguing that there's bias in targeting is nothing new. My colleague Yunus School summarized this aptly, stating that misconception of the nature of the target might occur because of cognitive bias, which misdirects attackers by analyzing information in a manner that supports their pre-existing beliefs or mental frameworks. Feminist scholars like Ollie Meyer-Stern criticized that the principle of distinction prioritized military interests despite a humanitarian facade the law employs. Against this background, I don't want to paint a completely new picture, but perhaps use different colors. As you may already noticed, I'm distinguishing between youth and young people. While international legal documents use both terms interchangeably, I believe we should try to make a distinction between them. I defined young people as natural persons aged 10 to 35 years, and I understand youth as a social construct comparable to gender and race. Youth and young people form the central analytical categories of my inquiry. So what is there to say about young people in armed conflict? There's no central statistic on the age of soldiers worldwide. However, the available information indicates that soldiers are mostly under 35 years old. According to the NGO Search for Common Ground, and I quote, the majority of Boko Haram fighters are teenagers. The typical ISIS recruit is around 26 years old, and most Jumu'ah Islamia members are young and male. Allow me to move now to the role of youth. Youth is constantly constructed in the context of violence. An aspect contributing to this is the so-called youth bulge theory, according to which a surplus population of young people increases the chances of civil unrest and armed conflict. Although it is now known that there is at best a weak correlation between large cohorts of young people and high levels of violence, and that other factors such as distribution of resources, political representation, employment, etc., play an important role, the youth bulge theory continues to inform understandings of youth. 
The youth bulge theory fuels the idea of youth as a threat. To quote population scholar Anne Hendrickson, and I quote, the youth bulge is personified in negative, racialized, and gendered terms as an angry young brown man from Africa, the Middle East, or parts of Asia or Latin America, often marked as a terrorist, end of quote. Youth studies offer an extensive literature on the no notion of youth and its relation to violence. Youth and crime are often juxtaposed, notes Andy Forlorn, during his time one of the leading scholars of the field. Interwoven into this idea that youth is immature, that youth is not ready to accept to live up the tide. Sorry. Interwoven into this idea that youth is immature, that youth is not accept, is not ready to accept or live up to society's values, and that youth even poses a threat to society. Youth represents a deviation from the norm. Youth is deliquent and must be demonized. Youth appears as faceless mass of persons who are alike underclass, unruly, male, challenging, out of place, and at once morally immature and physically powerful enough to seize their initiatives from the elders and betters. My claim is that the construct of youth can be utilized in armed conflict and that international humanitarian law remains suspiciously silent. In doing so, I'm building on Jean and John Komarov, who made the following powerful observation, albeit in the discipline of social anthropology. And I quote, but if these young people have embodied the threat of civil disorder, they can also be harnessed for state projects of organized violence, in particular for mobilization as soldiers. Often those not yet deemed ready to live as full citizens of the nation state have been called upon to die for it. This is the flip side of the story of youth and modernity. Adolescence as the infantry of state, adult statecraft, as the ever more reluctant blood and bone of national aspiration. At the core of the making of modern youth, then, has been the role of the state in naturalizing, exploiting, and narrating the relationship between juveniles and violence, the relationship alternately eclipsed in the disciplinary logic of peacetime discourses about adolescent deviance. Uh, and I would also like to point out that John Komarov uh, faces allegations uh, for harassing uh, students uh, in Harvard Law School. Uh, sorry, uh, Harvard uh, School of Anthropology. I wish to cite a statistic from a report on youth peace and security, which has been commissioned by the UN Security Council. In 2016, an estimated 408 million young people resided in settings affected by armed conflict or organized violence. That is almost one quarter of young people worldwide. The report stresses that those young people who join violent or extremist groups can constitute only a minute fraction of the young population. States, however, distort this picture as the report notes. It is mainly states and political leaders who seek to manipulate youth for political purposes, either by mobilizing them as foot soldiers for warfare or by culviating a pervasive fear of militarized, rebellious, dissenting or marauding youth. To emphasize my critique, just because the majority of soldiers and members of armed groups are young men does not mean that all young men are soldiers, members of armed groups or civilians directly participating in hostilities. I believe this has real life implications. As I've shown before, the law and the principle of distinction is anything but clear. With feminist critiques, I've made the case that the clarity of the law impacts the behavior of those doing the fighting. I've pointed to doctrinal scholars who acknowledge that cognitive biases in targeting exist. I underscored the vast literature which explores the gendered and racialized construction of youth as a threat. I believe that all of these points are connected in the sense that young men are not privileged in targeting decisions. 
According to UNFPA, every estimate of direct conflict suggests that more than 90% of all casualties occur among young adult males. Certainly, the reality of armed conflict hardly offers a research-friendly environment, let alone one that would encourage the collection of sex and age disaggregated data. While UNFPA acknowledges this, it highlights that small area-specific surveys yield at least some insight. Also, it is noteworthy that the report on youth peace and security, which has been commissioned by the UN Security Council, draws on the data of UNFPA, contributing to the authority of the source. As I've pointed out earlier, the principle of distinction offers little to address biases, let alone youth-specific biases. I deem this problematic. The principle of distinction, which in its current form lacks clarity, increases the risk that young men are not regarded as civilians, but as military targets. My critique centers around the law, or to simplify, around structural issues. I'm not engaging here with the work of political scientist Laura Sjöberg, who criticized specific states like the US for its targeting policy. The US, a state of the first world, presumes in its action abroad, the third world, that every military-aged male is a lawful target, unless there is explicit intelligence, intelligence posthumously pro proving them innocent. I believe it's quite obvious that this, in effect, indiscriminately targets young men. To take a step back, I wish to examine the structural premise of the Jusen Bello. The differentiation between peace and armed conflict is inherent to international humanitarian law. Hilary Charlesworth and Christine Jenkin have already emphasized that this obscures continuities and structures, and structures that transcend this binary. And I quote, violence against women in armed conflict and in peacetime conditions are not distinct phenomena, but form part of the same spectrum of behavior. They are both the product of systemic relations of male power and domination. International, international law's focus on crisis ignores more complex contexts, neglects structural challenges. With regard to women, only massive and organized rapes of women in times of armed conflict form part of international law's focus. Hilary Charlesworth criticized this exclusion. Other forms of systemic violence or structural discrimination against women do not constitute a crisis for international lawyers. This is rather seen as part of the status quo, not truly the business of international law. This critique can be extended to the categories of youth and young people. The construct of youth, which is produced in peacetimes, is exploited in times of conflict. That young people, compared to other courts, are those most likely to die through violence. That young people are disproportionately affected by suicide. That young people suffer disproportionately from mental illness. That young people are marginally represented in governments. That young people are specifically affected by unemployment, informal employment, and pay gaps do not point to ruptures that justify the binary, binarity of peace and armed conflict, but to continuities and structural challenges, to power asymmetries. The peace conflict binary, therefore, does not only obscure the role of gender, but also the role of youth and the perspectives and experiences of young people. This enables a more lasting or sustainable contextualization of the silence of the Jews and Bello, and that allows to ask why structural challenges faced by young people are not linked to the main crisis game, to use Hilary Charlesworth's words here. I join Hilary Charlesworth's critique and urge for more comprehensive analysis. And I quote, international lawyers are preoccupied with great crisis rather than the politics of everyday life. 
In this way, international law steers clear of analysis of longer-term trends and structural problems. That is why my talk is not solely about the principle of distinction. Thinking with youth and young people enables us to think about international law in all its facets in a more fundamental manner. The analytical categories of youth and young people can serve as a magnifying glass. To quote the Melbourne-based youth study scholars Joanna Wynne and Rob White, why study youth? We suggest that it is important to study young people's lives precisely because the process of transition to adult life for each individual reflect both an individual and a collective process. The very nature of youth is a result of social and political processes through which social inequality is constructed and reconstructed. It is important to study youth because the points where young people engage with the institutions that either promote social justice or entrench social divisions are significant points of reference for every society. Hence, the study of youth is important as an indicator of the real costs and benefits of the political and economic systems of each society. I want to create something that I call Young Approaches to International Law. However, perhaps I'm more reluctant after speaking to Professor Pahuja about this term, so I have to think about this more carefully. However, what I originally had in mind was that I want to use Young Approaches to International Law to remedy the little interest of existing critical approaches to international law in young people and youth. Young Approaches to International Law, however, does not constitute a break. It builds upon insights from numerous critical approaches and draws on their instruments and their politics. The coordinate system of power relations is not redrawn, but merely, merely supplemented. I believe young approaches to international law, an approach which, which centers around youth and young people, harbors the potential to revisit various laws, institutions, and history. The principle of distinction is only one aspect. I thank you for your time. It was a bit quicker than I thought, but this gives us more time perhaps to- Indeed it does, excellent. Take um, so thanks, Julian. I'm uh, very uh, interested to hear more about young approaches or however it might be <laughs> reframed to, to international law. Um, I'm going to use my chair's prerogative and ask the first question if that's okay before we open the floor. Um, I guess one of the central critiques that you've advanced is that there is a lack of clarity in the rules of IHL, particularly in relation to distinction and, and targeting law. And I think a lot has been written in the last few years about um, the fact that states are very slow to put their views on the public record about the proper interpretation and application of IHL rules. Um, and so I sort of see state practice as being quite central to that sort of foundational argument that there are gaps in the law that create this space for the, the biases that you've spoken about. And so I was just wondering, um, you know, how you approach that lack of access to the information about how states are actually applying targeting rules in practice. Like you've referred to the um, UK and French declarations so there is limited examples of that practice that can be readily accessed. But as a researcher, how do you sort of, um, I guess, tackle the, the silence that we see mm. in IHL? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. Um, I think with, with this talk, what I want to stress is that 
there is an issue and that we need more information. I think one of my first demands would be, let's have age-segregated uh, data. Um, and I'm, that's nothing like new. Um, if, if one looks at the feminist literature on IHL, one of the first claims, um, if I remember correctly, was let's have gender-desegregated data and actually see what is the issue. We need primary sources. And I would say that would that would be also my, my my first claim. We need more we need more data to really scrutinize where is the issue, and then the following question would be how can we we target it and how can um, how can we engage with that or uh, how can we make sense of 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 the primary sources we, we then um, have if that answers yeah. the question. So yeah, I I think we're very much at the beginning of that. Great, thank you. Our questions at the time, we're nearly at two o'clock. Were there any final questions for, for Julian today? No, well, perhaps I can ask you to join me in thanking uh, Julian and I can invite you to be happy for people to contact you if they've got ongoing Please, questions. Please, my email's up yeah. there. Great, yeah. thank you. Thanks very much, Julian. It was a really interesting presentation. Thank you. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.